0: Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's way lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So, hey, Dan. Thanks for coming down. Hey. Good to see you, Tara. Good to see you, Zach.
1: I'm excited to be here. Yeah.
0: So, you came down from the central part of the state, right? Yeah. I'm up in Wausau. In Wausau. Okay. So, for those listeners who don't know Wisconsin very well, where's Wausau?
1: Well, if you draw the bullseye on Wisconsin with I-39 up the middle and Highway 29 across the middle, where they hit in the middle is Wausau. That's where I am.
0: Perfect, and historically, a lot of paper making up there
1: yeah, uh that's where I spent a big chunk of my career was in pulp and paper, and that has gone away in large part, yeah, um, a lot of uh diversity in northern Wisconsin with recreational businesses, agriculture, mining, pulp and paper manufacturing mm-hmm. um, so um
0: Pretty still, good cut. Yeah, and still pretty natural resource base. it sounds like.
1: Yeah, um, there's a pretty good diverse economy in that northern and north-central Wisconsin because there are still plenty of paper mills running. There's uh, some good, solid manufacturing businesses around and going yet, and uh, yet there's also um, a lot going on within insurance and business services and things like that as well as... You know, recreational Northwoods type of business. Sure, sure. Good place to be.
0: Sure. And did you grow up there?
1: Yeah. um, I grew up in central Wisconsin milking cows. And then. uh, I didn't know you grew up on a dairy farm. um, I think a lot of us up there did. And Mm -hmm. then uh, was a truck mechanic in college. And then did the public accounting auditor deal for the first three years. Holy
0: cow. So you got to wait a minute. How did you get from a truck mechanic to. And you're a CPA, right? Yeah. Okay. uh, In college, I was a truck mechanic. Okay. Uh, Just to to kind of pay the way through. through. Got
1: it. I think that kind of where you've been kind of breeds a little bit of who you are. And Mm -hmm. I think uh, growing up on a dairy farm, the cows have to be milked. There are no excuses. And so you kind of get that mentality of how are we going to do it regardless of who says we can't. And uh, being a mechanic, you start to learn that if I don't fix it right in the shop, I'll be on the ground, on a road somewhere in the dark with rain, so you might as well do it right the first time. And uh, being an auditor, I think that's great experience for anyone in finance and accounting to do auditing for a few years because you develop that mindset of somebody's going to review this Mm -hmm. and I'm going to have to explain why I did it this way. Um, And I think you, you get a more conscious effort to leave a good trail and a good understanding of how you did things and why, and you become more process-oriented, so kind of built who I
0: am. Right, yeah. Well, and the other thing I think is interesting about that story is um, somebody told me recently that there are more um, public company presidents who grew up in Wisconsin than any other state in the country. And I think part of it is that culture that comes from, we're such a dairy driven state for so long, right? That culture that you described about working hard and getting things done and you know, no matter what. I think that it, that's something that that, that that could be. I don't know. I don't know. Stat, it's but, a theory. There's but, a theory about the culture around here that breeds people who have, who um, step up to those leadership roles with that kind of integrity and commitment and work long hours and all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to invite you onto the show because I've worked with you on with some clients and um, I think there's a great opportunity to to talk about what financial people like you actually do when you're working in a company, because most people who start food companies do not have an accounting background. And so this whole world of accounting and finance is a pretty big black box to a lot of people. So why don't we just start with to be a CPA? what What do you have to do? Well, and even within CPA, Uh, Not to make
1: it more complex than it really is, where I came from is grew up with public accounting auditing because when I came out of colleging, auditing was a very manual process and most accountants started as an auditor. We've got our CPA license. We did that for a few years and then went into private industry. Mm -hmm. Um, When you go into private industry, you might go into cost accounting or cost analysis, which is... Really, the how do we make our product better? How do we control the costs of our product? And it's about identifying overhead, variable costs, fixed costs, and getting those product cost type things sorted out. You might be general ledger accountant, financial accountant, whose role is to make sure the accuracy and the integrity of the balance sheet and the income statement and the cash flows are there. And over my career, that piece of it really has become compressed because the automation of using packages like a QuickBooks or a Peachtree or at a higher level, a a Mapix or a Solomon or an SAP, as long as the transactions are entered into the system correctly and allocated to the right product centers, cost centers, geographic territories, whatever data is in there can be sifted by the financial analyst team on the backside. And that's where you hear about accountants that work in financial planning and analysis. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that go through that data in bigger companies and decide, gee, are we going to acquire Terra's way? And what are the cash flows? And what are the ratio analyses? And how does that all come together? And that's the financial planning and analysis team. Then because of what happened with, um, Companies like Enron, you know, you've got the Surbanes-Oxley compliance and the Sox general ledger team that's there to make sure we've got excellent controls over our accounting transactions and that they're accurate, not being manipulated. And senior management has a responsibility to make sure that they're accurate. And that's kind of where the general ledger team has gone to. And then obviously you've got this whole area of tax planning, financial Analysis, accounting and trying to optimize entities and tax programs and schemes in, to set that up. And, and that's a whole other animal in and of itself. And then you've got the group that's in finance that really works more with, gee, should we finance this with short-term debt, long-term debt, equity strategy? What's our best weighted average cost of capital? And how does that fit with Where we're going with the business strategy and i think for the audience that you and i work with it's really about do you you really make sure that you get the income statement being an activity period statement feeding each moment in time balance sheet and understanding what those are about to use it to produce a projection Um, and i think that's the key and taking the time to make sure you've got good data in something. I don't want to be a salesperson for QuickBooks, but something like that to track your accounting as you go so you don't have to try to do it after the fact.
0: So thank you for that walk through all the dimensions of accounting (laughs) because I listened to that and I ran a fairly, I ran a company at at one point in my career that had like $50 in sales. And our, our accounting team at that point was like two people, right? And I was always like, what are they doing you know mm-hmm. and then we had outside consultants coming in cuz we were putting in an inventory system at the time which was a complete nightmare um so yeah there's a lot you the accounting groups um do a lot in a company and then here we are now working with startups, right? We are young companies, and you don't have the luxury of having this whole team. And then most of the people who start the companies, as I said, are, don't have a financial background. So um, I'm a big fan of, of QuickBooks, honestly, mostly because um, the banks and everybody knows how to work with them. Mm-hmm. With QuickBooks, right? They're used to it. And if you show up with another tool for in a startup phase, um, people are, uh, um, I want to say, a bit skeptical because they don't know the tool very well. They don't trust it as much. They don't want to work in it. They don't have time. You know, there are a bunch of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, well,
1: I, I think the the easiest way to validate the accuracy and completeness of someone's accounting because it, it's always easy to analyze this number is right or wrong or in the right place or not. But what about the numbers are missing?
0: Mm. You know, not
1: to call Don Rumsfeld, but you don't know what you don't know. Right. Um, And how do you find that? So if you have it in an application that has the transactions and forces you to do a monthly bank reconciliation, now your bank statement ties to your accounting. So if you're missing something from your accounting, it, it's going to come through on the bank statement and say what's going on. So when someone comes into a bank and says, I've got it all on this great spreadsheet, that I think is the main reason the banker has that skepticism because they can't look at it and know it, it all ties It never got tied out, and right. And it, it's all inclusive. Yeah. Everything's there. Yeah. So that's an element of it. Um, the other thing that I do want to make sure that um, with the audience of entrepreneurs um, – and I guess, you know, I think about my different roles along the way. I've been a um, a controller for a $20 million successful startup. I've been a manufacturing division controller for a global company um, of a half a million dollar group and watched as the paper industry went away how that kind of went down. I was a controller for a different public company. And in that group, I was part of the acquisition team evaluating companies we were going to buy so got a different education that way um, and then I was the CEO of about a 20 million dollar startup that it was successful as well and so the one thing I look at is you can't get bogged down in any one corner of the detail so mm-hmm. when I sit down with clients that you've helped steer me towards I'd like to talk about the three-legged stool if you've got to have the, the product leg no you know, what you're making, how you're making it, what does it cost you? You've got to have your sales and marketing, distribution stand of who's gonna get rid of it. If you've got a great mouse trap and the world doesn't know, you're going broke. And then the other leg is that administrative accounting sort of leg that it's kind of like the furnace. It's in the basement, keeps the house from freezing, but nobody wants to see it or know about it. Um, So you've got to have that leg squared away but don't get bogged down in it. And I've had a couple entrepreneurs that all of a sudden they're learning more about QuickBooks than I know Mm -hmm. and they're losing a lot of time on it. And it's like, well, you need to go chase your customers. And as long as you get the idea that you need to allocate each transaction to the pieces that you're going to want to sift out on the backside, get that done, and then at each period end, get that reporting done. But if you're going to want to decide... I want to know sales by state, well, then, by gosh, every sales invoice is going to have to identify which state shipped to was on it. If you don't have garbage in, garbage out, if you don't have the detail on the front end, you're not going to have it on the backside.
0: So um, I, there's so many things in here that I want to talk about, but one of the ones that I want to highlight right, is cost of goods sold. So in because in food companies, that is so important, right, right? Um, whether you make money or not is invariably tied to what cost of goods sold is and your control over cost of goods sold. Turns out that people who value, do valuation work for acquisitions, banks, everybody, they go, the, like, they the first thing they look at on a financial statement when they're doing due diligence is probably sales. The second one is cost of goods sold. And then we got to work through a bunch of stuff. So let's. Talk about cost of goods sold mm-hmm. and what a, what a cost accountant does and cost of goods sold in, in food. And when you work with food clients, I know that you work with them on cost of goods sold. So. It,
1: it's, and it's not exclusive to food. It's pretty much anyone that adds value to product that doesn't sell at that moment. Um, the, the trickiest part of cost of sales is valuing inventory at the end of a period to look at the income statement for that given month. If someone's deciding that they're going to start a beverage company and they're going to sell you know, bottled beverage like that soda there in front of you, and they find out that if they buy a two-year supply of bottle caps, they get this great bargain. Well, if they expense that all in the period they buy them in, it destroys that month's income statement. So what they need to do is value those bottle caps, and then every month, at the end of the month, take an inventory Or have a perpetual inventory system to know how much should be left and adjust the balance sheet inventory item for that raw material and reflect what was used as a cost of sale item bottle cap expense for each given month. And at the very base level, I've seen some folks that they're doing cash basis accounting, expensing it when it comes in the door, and then if they buy any supply that lasts more than a few months it destroys their income statement in the period they bought it, and then future periods look way too good, and then when they restock, it looks bad. So on a very fundamental level, you need to make sure that you're tracking your materials and recording them in the period that they were sold, not the period they came in. The next element, the next layer of that from a complexity standpoint is internal to the entity, Tara might be selling that soda and paying me and Zach to fill the bottles and put the cap on. So how much of our labor and activity and forklift fuel and things like that go into producing the bottled product on the shelf, even though it's not going to sell until some future month? So that gets into product costing and allocating not just the raw materials that were pulled for the finished goods, and allocated to the finished goods, but then the finished goods that were sold. And so then you get into the complexity of cost centers, cost pools, and allocation of those cost pools. And the next obvious layer of, you know, everything gets a little bit more complex the more sophisticated it gets when you decide, gee, which overhead are we looking at? And sometimes you hear about gap overhead and gross profit versus variable margin, because some entities say, we really don't care about our depreciation cost in each soda because we're making decisions about which product. So let's just keep that off to the side for the generally accepted accounting principle gap income statement. But on the variable basis, we want to keep track of the labor of the team and where their labor went to and allocate that really well so we know our variable margin per product. And then when you go up to the next layer, there's obviously producing financial statements. When you talk about if an equity group is going to purchase the organization, they want to look at your tax returns to see what you told the government, and they want to look at your financial statements. And generally accepted accounting principles have some rules and standards about what to allocate to overhead, but IRS Code Section 263 has some different rules so now you've got this reconciliation between tax accounting and book accounting for what's inside your overhead. And that's kind of that level where, gee, we need a specialist yeah, that right, knows this right. area to come and help us. Right.
0: So because this is so critical um, and, and you hear all this complexity, one of the things I don't like about Quickbooks is uh, the getting inventory to work in Quickbooks is pretty difficult for people which I think is just a mechanical reason why a lot of startups end up expensing right they expensing things mm-hmm. that should have been going into inventory. So what uh, your that process that you described of having having a mechanism for having bringing something onto your balance sheet when you purchase it and then relieving it into cost of goods sold as you sell the product. Um, I what I do is tell clients to go they have to have an accountant who understands this an accountant who does will give you a set of journal entries to do at the end of every month does that sound reasonable to keep it simple for a small
1: startup Um, what what we're talking about there is simply a matter of okay if, if we're going to take my labor and I'm your plant floor setup person and it Are you going to create a production job for every job that runs through the plant and have me punch in and out on every job and track the costs into those jobs? And you see larger manufacturing firms where folks are scanning their key card every time they move around the building, and that's allocating their time to these different areas. If it's you and a couple of folks in a rented garage space that need to get the product put together, you know, for the next order then maybe it makes more sense to say we're just going to have the labor for the month that we recorded and we're going to allocate it on a per gallon or per pound basis or whatever or dollar sales basis you know however you're going to allocate it and have the accountant make that adjustment at the period of the end and that gets back to how much does it cost to collect perfection and perfection is a waste of time right right Um, so you know nobody's going to pay for it um so How much data do you need to make good decisions from? And I think for most smaller entrepreneurs, it's a question of when should we be doing things in-house? When should we find a toll manufacturer or buy sub-assemblies or sub-components? And for that reason, we need to have a good sense of what our internal costs are for the different elements of the product. And as part of that, you just hit on the perfect key is when I work with folks, I speak to them pretty quickly about who's your outside bookkeeper accountant or CPA. And if you get with whoever's doing your annual tax return or your monthly sales tax, and you say, how much to have you once a month, because they can do it remotely, everything's in the cloud now, log into my books, look it over, do the bank rec, ask questions about how I screwed up certain things, do the adjusting entries to accrue things that are only paid once a year, like Property taxes and to take things that were paid like bank loan payments and allocate part of them to principal reduction, part to interest expense. Have that individual come in, spend a couple hours at the end of every period or every month, and then you get those statements. It makes sure that the statements get done every month because they're there to do it, and it makes sure that they're accurate because they reviewed them. And then it forces you to actually look at how you're doing because you went through the effort and you compensated somebody to put it together.
0: Right, right. When I I started up Terra's Way, we didn't have enough money to – and I had investors, so investors want – there's this other layer of credibility that comes, right, that you need for for a board and investors. So we had a relationship with our auditor um, that was exactly as you described, and it was fantastic. Because there are all kinds of things that I didn't know. I, I'm fairly literate about finance. Um, I'm, I'm slightly literate, probably, enough, you know, literate enough to be dangerous about accounting. And I really needed somebody. And so I don't think people realize that that service is even something that's out there. And you're only buying a small portion of somebody's time. You don't, at that stage, it really... It's hard to justify and you really don't need a full-time person yet, right?
1: Mm -hmm. I I think on a very, very small enterprise, you're going to have to do your payroll taxes and you need to reconcile those on the 941 every quarter. So at least have somebody come in quarterly. And when I say come in, I mean electronically look Mm -hmm. into the files. Mm -hmm. They don't need to come and meet you.
0: Physically, they don't need to be there. And when you
1: make that point, you can remote in, make the adjustments, send me a summary and mm-hmm. if they know they don't have to kind of hobnob with you, their, their billing rates can move down, and that helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think at the very least quarterly, move it to monthly until you can have an internal accounting manager or controller take that on. Um, when you look at it, there's a couple of things. As soon as you start bringing in employees and adding the complexity of payroll taxes and accruing for them, and then I've seen several small businesses where one month every year in the past several years has been horrible. Well, they don't know why, but it is. So then you go and you look. Well, it's every year when they've got a workers' comp audit adjustment going the wrong way. Right. Well, if right. you had an accountant look every month, they'd accrue for that monthly. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's a, you know a period that goes great every year because they get a dividend from something. But it's important to have somebody look, just do the checkup, make sure it works out. And that way, when you bring in the next level that, you know, I kind of call that the general ledger Mm -hmm. accounting manager function. Then if you want to move in to say, we're going to project out and move forward. Bankers are huge fans of financial analysis. And the biggest way that bankers see credibility in your two, three, or five-year projection is to know, well, this is the projection we did a year ago, and this is how we've been doing every month against projection. As soon as you tell your financial institution that you've been in the business of projecting, you know. if you forecast the weather and say how you're doing against it, suddenly you've got a lot more credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so that element of it comes a lot easier and has a lot stronger credibility if you've got a monthly financial review process. Right,
0: right. I, I completely agree with that. Um, I think the other thing that is worth talking about is people kind of think... Um, well, it's good enough to have a bookkeeper. I'll just hire somebody from the outside who will do my bookkeeping. And my comment to that is that a lot of bookkeepers in my, unless this is not always true, but mostly true, um, they're doing data entry. They're not doing what you've been describing. Has that been your experience as well?
1: Um, I I think I've seen an element of that. And one of the things that I've, seen that i find interesting is um i've been the the controller or done kind of rent a controller when someone's on leave or something for a couple of pretty good-sized businesses one of them had almost a billion dollars in sales on an annual basis and the original person that started the business signed every check
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's the only way I know what's going on for sure. Right, right. And I've heard that about Sam Walton, mm-hmm. Henry Ford. They might have a bunch of people around them, mm-hmm. but they sign every check to know what's going on. So if you know that you're there as an entrepreneur looking at mm-hmm. every piece of money going through, um, then I think as long as you're doing that, if you're good enough with QuickBooks as a small entrepreneur to allocate and enter it correctly, do that. Mm-hmm. Um, not to create an accounting distraction, but how is an, a small bookkeeper, no matter how good or bad I am as a bookkeeper, mm-hmm. I don't know how you want this check allocated to distribution Midwest versus distribution West Coast versus you know some other area. Whereas if you know your basic account structure and your cost center structure and you review and enter those things, It's not that hard, and it's kind of like studying your notes for a college class, and there's not that much activity. Once you get a little bit of a process down, you can do it pretty cleanly.
0: Right, and I I kind of have this sense that that for the amount you would pay to have somebody review your books at the end of the month who is actually an accountant and can help you fix stuff, um, it's about the same thing or mm-hmm. maybe even a little less than you would pay for a bookkeeper depending on how many transactions you have, right, to do the day-to-day stuff. So I, I don't think it ends up being that more expensive, right? And,
1: and the other element of that, and and I've seen this myself as I've helped uh, um, clients with, with projects. When I was in public accounting, they have... Very junior auditors do basic work, seniors review that, managers review the summary, partners sign off on it, because it's hard to find your own mistakes. Mm-hmm. Kind of like when, when you read, you know, J.K. Rowling is excited that the editor gave notes. You know, everyone needs a second set of eyes to look over things that they didn't spot. And if I'm the bookkeeper and you're paying me to do the entry, you're not paying me to review your entry decisions. Now, if you take on that little bit of, you know, 20, 30 checks a month of entry and decide you're going to manage that at a very small business level, and then you're going to pay me instead to review what you entered and reconcile the bank account, that's going to give you a much more accurate set of books and bring things out of it. Now, granted, if you're all of a sudden, you know, processing, you know, 1,000 checks a week, that's a different animal. But but I think if if it's a very entrepreneurial business where you can manage that entry but not get sucked into gee, how do I allocate inventory and overhead and do I accrue this? I'm talking about is this check valid to enter and pay? Mm-hmm. And what's it for? And just get it in the system. Right. And that's a pretty easy process. Right.
0: And the other thing I encourage people to do is to use your accountant to set up your QuickBooks initially, right? Because all those allocations and stuff, once they're set up, it's not hard to do the entry, right? And I've had a couple of cases where people have attempted to set them up on their own. And um, it's been... Kind of a problem for a long time to undo, right? Because mm-hmm. things got set up, items got set up incorrectly to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. So and, and, it's I, like like setup time. You need somebody who really understands accounting, and then and then this review thing. You need somebody who really understands accounting. And,
1: and on the setup side, the one caution I would make is don't overcomplicate it. If you make your decisions intuitively or based on where your business has been, don't now try to create the U.S. Census Bureau in your accounting (laughs) program. Um, You're not going to look at the detail and you're going to kill yourself trying to create that detail. And I see some folks that all of a sudden, like you say, you've got item detail allocating to all these different cost centers and geographic areas and sales territories and all these things. And all of those have to be entered then on every sales item. Simpler is typically better. You know, I'm still a fan of the Toyota way Mm -hmm. where every presentation needs to fit on one sheet. Um, So from that standpoint, how much data do you need to make good business decisions? So you might decide on the sales side, we're going to allocate things to product lines and geographic sales territories and sales invoices. We are going to need that kind of detail. On the purchase side, whether or not you have one manufacturing cost center or 12 and how you allocate costs into those centers, make sure you don't make it more complicated than necessary on the front end. I think I see that mistake more often than, oh, we we only have two cost centers, so we don't know that. Well, yeah,
0: no, the the trouble are usually when people tried to get too complicated and didn't have it set up right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, this is related to cost of goods sold, but in in food companies, um, there's all kinds of costs associated with going to market. So things like broker fees, which are, you know, a broker is a percent of a sale. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things like demos and all, uh, and there's always this um, confusion on the part of people of what would go into cost of goods sold? And what would be expensed? And so I think it would be useful to just talk about gap, from a gap perspective okay. for the moment. How do you tell?
1: Okay, the, the first answer from, I remember this from being trained as an auditor back in the beginning days, the best answer you can always give is, it depends. <laughs> so. Oh god, how <laughs> helpful. But in all seriousness, when you look at what are those costs and what are they related to, If they are a part of the product and integral to making the product come together, packing it in the boxes and getting those boxes in the cases and getting the cases on the pallet, now those are product-related costs, tangible, part of the cost of sales product. When you look at sales and distribution and sales and marketing, they might be a deduction to sales, and that's where if you've got gross sales minus commissions and other selling costs frayed out
0: so yeah so let's talk about deductions from sales first so so things because this is really common right in in the food industry um you're gonna sell um you sell to a distributor and then you get um you you get some deducts for things like promotions or through the distributor or Um, special um, treatment that you got or a discount you gave them or something, they show up as discounts. So those should be deductions to sales for the most
1: part. In a general sense, Mm -hmm. because the the key is if you have a salesperson on staff, they're part of your period costs or your operating costs, wages, sales. But if you're paying a commission to an outside entity, then – it's possible, especially if it's a like you say a deduct from the distributor that it's a reduction to sales to get to net sales. So you almost have to look at it on a transaction level basis. And I know we kidded about this before. I've got a sophisticated database called Google, <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you just Google it, mm-hmm. um, the AICPA's database is there, the mm-hmm. IRS's database is there, um, where you used to have to go to a lawyer and accountant to get research on things. Now, IRS.gov is pretty easy to get to from an IRS standpoint, and there's a lot of things for GAP out there. So, if you're looking at an individual cost and say, gee, which is this, you can look at it at that time and say, is it related to the delivery of the product, um, freight out, for instance? If you're paying shipping from your dock to the customer versus the customer pick it up at the dock, GAP is saying, Don't inflate your sales and your cost of sales by putting that freight in. Have your freight out be something that reduces down to net sales. So that way, if one month you're doing a delivered price and the next month you're doing it at our dock and the customer's paying the freight, your net sales number really doesn't change because that increased sales and that freight out go in as that reduction to sales. But by the same token, if you've got some internal costs related to trucks moving around from w- between your warehouse and your plant, that's a cost of sales, a production cost. So if, if you try to intuitively think, is this a cost that's related to increasing the sales number, but it's a cost of getting that sale done, then it's probably a reduction between gross sales and net sales. If it's a cost that's related to increasing the value for the end customer, it's probably a cost of sales. Then if you've got things that this is part of our operating cost of our team. If we have a team of sales and marketing people that go to trade shows every month or every quarter, and they're incurring these trade show costs, that's probably an operating cost of sales and marketing. And it goes into that area of the income statement. Mm -hmm. And again, you're always going to have somewhere you scratch your head and say, where does this go? So, there's not always a completely cut-and-dried answer, but for the most part, as we talk through this, if it's related to enhancing the delivery or the sale or getting the sale done and commissioning and getting that done, it's a reduction between gross and net sales. If it's increasing the value of the end product to the end user or, or the, what's being shipped, then that's probably a cost of sales. If it's part of your internal ongoing team and they're going to incur these costs... Independent of what your sales are this month, then they're probably an operating or period cost. Right,
0: and the way you've de- the way you've described that is um, aligns really well with my experience with people who are buying food companies or are doing due diligence on food companies. What they expect, where they expect to see those sales costs, because there are others, uh, a uh, it seems like a myriad of them, right, in 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 food brands. So. Um, so your description is uh, is a good one for our listeners who are trying to figure this out. Like, where do I put this?
1: The, I think the the biggest issue that I've dealt with, because that's not just food companies. Right, it's, it's everybody. Kind of yeah. company, but where, where food companies really have an issue, and this is where as you start to grow mm-hmm. and say, gee, we've outgrown QuickBooks or whatever small pack mm-hmm. like a peach tree or something you've used, is if you're going to have to try and keep track of lot numbers mm-hmm. because you may have to do a recall. No one wants or hopes you have those kind of things.
0: Yeah, but well, and now it's getting to the point, I think it's this year where even small manufacturers have to be able to demonstrate under the FISMA requirement. So sadly, we're all doing lot control.
1: So when you mention specifics of food industry mm-hmm. customers, yep, yep. I think lot number tracking mm-hmm. is the biggest issue I'm aware of. That's a great point. And I think um, I've seen some pretty big food companies with a couple hundred employees that were running what, um, I can't remember what MAS calls it now. It used to be Peachtree. But that particular accounting application has some capabilities in it to do some lot control within your inventory. But I think it's like a $300 package instead of a
0: $100. Right. Right. Uh,
1: So if, if you know that you're going to be headed that way, that would be one of the things you'd want to keep in mind with your base accounting
0: package. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that is a a whole topic that is ripe for a conversation with your accountant too, because they, they can help you get that set up. Um, it's, it's the, the train is out of the station on that. Right. So, Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think there's a lot of, um, denial out there in terms of, oh, you know, maybe it'll go away before I have to comply, (laughs) you know, we can always hope. And, and it takes a while to get into compliance because Mm -hmm. if you think about it, if you don't have all that law tracking to go back and get it all in place is not something that happens in a day.
1: And, And the other element of that is as long as that accountant that you're working with, that's doing your monthly processing if they come up with a different package and say, this is the package that all my clients use, and then it ties into the tax return at the end of the year, and you guys are kumbaya, that's the perfect package for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and when you come to someone like me to help put together the packaging for financing mm-hmm. or to go and have you work with them on a road show to try and get some equity or something, then they're going to drop those monthly financials into a spreadsheet environment, and we're going to build a projection off of it and a business plan around it. So pretty much, regardless of what they use for that base package, you're going to move it to a spreadsheet. I used to always say Excel, but I am shocked how many people are now using Google Sheets. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're going to move it from that accounting package into a spreadsheet and build the projection off of it. So if your accountant has a particular package that they've got all their clients on and it works with their tax software and you and this accountant really work great together, that's the package to use.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, um, we've talked about cost of goods sold. Um, one of the other things that I think um, this has just been my experience working with people is that, um, and I think this is because it's harder to do balance sheet transactions in most accounting and it's less intuitive for people, right? Uh, their balance sheets aren't up to date. I can tell when I look at them that they're not up to date. Um, so, so let's talk about balance sheets a little bit. Um, why are they important? Why should we care about that stuff?
1: Um, just like we talked about with inventory, that when we bought those bottle caps for a two-year supply and we use a certain amount up every month and we expense the amount we used every month, That remaining balance is sitting on our balance sheet. By the same token, if we're going to get hit with a big expense, property tax, workers' comp insurance, audit, whatever those are that we only have to pay out once a year, we need to accrue a liability for those each month and expense it. So in order for the current income statement to be accurate, you've got to adjust the balance sheet at the end of every period to get to that. And that's where when folks say they don't look at financials, they don't get it. And I like to point out, you know, if you're a great race car driver, but you can't read a map, you're not going to be able to drive this bus. And your maps driving this bus are your monthly financial statements. And from an intuitive standpoint, when you look at something that's on the income statement like sales, you have sales for a period of time, a day, a week, a month, a quarter, a year, But you have accounts receivables from customers at a moment in time. What did our customers owe us January 31st? Or what did our customers owe us February 28th? And then when we look at what were the sales in between, plus or minus the change in receivables, to get actual sales. And the only way you can do that to get that income statement accurate for that period is to have The cutoff, the balance sheet, the moment in time statement, accurate on each end. So it's critical to recognize the balance sheet is for a moment in time. It doesn't, you know, it's a point. And what were the balances at that point? And then what's the activity to the next balance sheet? And that activity to the next balance sheet is your income or operation statement, your profit and loss. And if you just keep that in mind then it's easier, I think, to get the sense of what's on the balance sheet and where do I adjust to the balance sheet. So then when you get a bill for a workers' compensation insurance adjustment and you pay that and it can get expensed to other employment expenses and that accountant that you've been talking about working with, they're going to look at the end of the month and say, nope, that goes to accrued, Workers' comp liability, and we've been accruing for that every month, and now they adjust the balance sheet and the expense. die And your income statement ties out. But the key is, if you don't adjust the balance sheet every month for inventory, then your cost of sales becomes cash based and it's not accurate. Does right. That, is that enough? Clarification?
0: Yeah. 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 It's um. So so really. I mean, if I had to zoom up and say the you know the 100,000-foot view on this, if you're not keeping your balance sheet up to date, um, you're going to have problems with your income statement accuracy, and you're definitely going to have problems under forecasting cash or understanding how much cash you have in the business. It, you know, a lot of the people that I work with, it's kind of a eye-opening thing to learn that how much cash you have is not directly related to net income on your income statement right they're not there are two different things
1: exactly and, and the and the key with that is when you look at the different types of business and their cash cycle and as they grow so if you're in a business where we take all of our orders over the web and the customer puts in their credit card or their paypal and we get paid before we do anything you know if you're wouldn't that well, be wonderful uh, so yeah. so if you're an amazon or a google mm-hmm. or something like that you become flush with cash day one and it grows that way mm-hmm. um, historically retail businesses would always go broke after Christmas right because they collect from the customers in the way we just described but they didn't have to pay their vendors until 30 60 90 mm-hmm. days out So in February and March they had nothing coming in and all that cash that they collected in December if it didn't make it till March that's why you'd see them go, the the big national bankruptcies Mm -hmm. would happen in that first quarter. Now, I saw Toys R Us went the other day, so I'm scratching my head. But, But that cash cycle of as the business grows, what do we need to finance to fill the pipeline or the supply chain? And that might mean where in a food business, you have the added complexity of seasonality on both ends. Because... Folks may spend more on food for the holidays, and they may be a processed food of some type that takes you weeks or months to put together, and yet the producer or the farmer wants to be paid for and sell their ingredients in the fall as well. So you might have to stock up on raw materials for six months to a year or maybe even longer. So as your business grows, gee, our business grew 10%, so now we have to buy, you know, raw materials at such a higher level this coming August or September and how do you finance that
0: Right it and might be
1: intensely profitable but not this right, November Right not
0: that right not this November and that there there is an incredible need for working capital in food businesses so that's why I always talk to people about the importance of getting a relationship with a lender who can be there to help you with working capital as you grow, because food companies always need working capital. Well, thank you so much for coming. I think this is going to be incredibly useful to a lot of people who are our listeners, so thanks so much. Thank you for
1: having me, and uh, again, I'm out on LinkedIn if anybody's got any questions, and I can't thank you and
0: Zach enough for putting this together. Terrific. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.